Today's dead idea, the medieval Irish geish, a soul-binding personal rule that kills you. <laughs> so if, think of it this way. Remember when you were kids and your sister jinxed you so you couldn't talk till your mom said it was okay? Well, it's kind of like that, except if you talk, you die. <laughs> it is a jinx of doom. If somebody placed a geish on you, you have to follow it or fate comes crashing down on you. For example, the hero Cahullin had a geish that he could not eat dog meat, but also had another one that he must accept any food offered to him. So when an old woman offered him dog meat, he could not refuse, and he met his fate soon after. It's a soul-binding personal rule that kills you. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who has placed a geish on me that I cannot eat nothing but Cheez-Its and Dr. Pepper for dinner, or it will be my doom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm B.T. Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. With me today is my co-host for the day, Andre Solo. What? what? <laughs> hey, everybody. Hey, Andre. Thanks for being on the show again. Glad to be here. Do you have any geisha on you right now? Not that I'm aware of, which is probably the most dangerous kind of geish. Oh, a secret geish. <laughs> <laughs> you won't know what fits Surprise! you. Surprise! You broke your geish. <laughs> uh, Andre knows hella tons about traditional Irish culture. He is practically shitting clovers over here. <laughs> so I thought he'd be a great co-host for this particular series. He was also our co-host for the ginormous Stone Circle series about Stonehenge, which was awesome. So it's great to have you on the show again. I'm, I'm loving it. Glad to be here, man. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things I want to get out of the way before we start. First of all, our cat just came <laughs> into the room. So if you hear him, that is our cat, Mr. Fish. Uh, second thing to get out of the way <laughs> is uh, the geish comes from Old Irish epic literature. And this episode series is going to be correspondingly epic. We are going for a monster length series this time. Andrea and I found so much good stuff to talk about that we decided that we just had to do this right. In fact, we practically placed a geisha on ourselves to really do this one true just to, to bring its spirit. It. Yeah, to bring so, it. If you don't like this episode, we actually die. <laughs> yeah, you guys have so, a lot of power right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so please send in some good reviews, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, first of all, Andre and I are doing not two, but three initial episodes. We usually do two series, but this time we're doing three episodes. And we're not done yet. After that, we are doing our first ever interviews. Yes, we have some really cool people to talk to about medieval Irish culture. Uh, first of all, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jillian Kenny of Trinity College in Dublin about women and magic in medieval Ireland. Literally looking forward to that. We'll also be interviewing Finn Duar, host of the Irish History Podcast about the impact of the Vikings on medieval Irish culture. So those are both going to be really fun. Add in the Public Domain Theater 3000 and you have got yourself an epic length series here. It's going to be really cool. You're going to need a lot of Guinness to get through this. <laughs> <laughs> Buy a six pack at least. At least. Yeah. Um, and not only that, we're still not done. <laughs> we also have a custom-created map for you, generously generated by listener Adam McKithern, 
Thank you, Adam. You are awesome. Uh, so with this map, which we'll post on our website, deadideas.net, and on our Facebook page, you can visualize the places that we're talking about. So definitely check that out. Okay. And last but not least, I also want to call attention to our Patreon page because I don't know if you've been there or not, but if you go there, you will notice that for a substantial contribution, you can place one of these jinxes of doom on us. You can place a geish on one of us, one of us hosts on the show, like me, Andre, Nick, Anna, etc. Whatever you say, when we're on the show, we have to follow your geish or risk our grim demise. So it's an on-air geish. An on-air like When geish. you're on-air, you have to do this, yes. or you yes. can't do this. For example, Got you it. can say that Brandon cannot say the word beer on-air. <laughs> Yeah. It'll be a Cerveza episode. <laughs> or you can uh, you can guess Andre so that every time he says our new president-elect's name, he has to also say, long live the king. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I might just do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so keep that in mind, listeners. You can place a geisha on us. All right, enough already. Let's get to it. Today we're talking about geish and honor. Yeah, and I think the first thing we should just throw out there, just to clarify for listeners, is you're going to hear a lot of words from Old Irish. We uh, we are doing our very best to pronounce them correctly, and that also means we're going to use the correct but weird plurals. So one single geish placed on you is a geish, yeah. but if you have more than one, they are geisa. So you'll hear us say geish and geisa, same thing, just geisa is plural. Like memoirs of a geisa? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which would be an even better book, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this thing called geish comes from medieval Ireland. It comes from a deep pagan past, perhaps as far back as the Iron Age. Nobody's quite sure, but it doesn't get written down until later in the Christian era. So we're actually focusing on medieval Ireland in the 10th century, that's in the Christian era, when this stuff first gets written down. So we're focusing on the 10th century when we first hear of the geisa. Right. And I think it is worth noting, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that a lot of the stories that were written down in that period that are these great epics and kind of, you know, legends of, of ancient Ireland, although they were written in that period, the language they were written in implies that they were at least a few centuries older at the time they were written down. Like That's the, right. the spoken language they were writing down was older than what they spoke in the 10th century. So yeah, probably were... at least from the Dark Ages, you know, maybe like the 600s, 700s, these stories would have been around. Earlier than that, maybe, but no one's exactly sure. Yeah, generally reworking fragments from the 6th and 7th centuries. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so, Gesa. This is really weird. A soul-binding rule that kills you? It what? Kills you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, <laughs> so, I, I, I just left scratching my head. I don't, okay, Andre, tell us, please. What is a Gesa? Give us the tweet. The tweet. Yes. A, a gaze is a an injunction that is put upon you. It can either be positive or negative, meaning it, it could say you have to do this, or it could say you must never do this. And if it is put on you in the right way by the right person, it is binding, and if you ever do it, you will literally lose your life shortly thereafter. If you ever break it, I should say. If it's put on you by the right person? Right. So who's the right person? Good question. So you get the <laughs> sense, reading these stories, that it's not just... It's not a casual thing, you know. It's not like that. Your sister can just kind of like like we were saying with the jinx. Yeah, <laughs> kids jinx each other all the time. Well, if kids were were gaishing each other all the time, there'd be a lot of dead kids. Well, that does sound pretty medieval. That's true. That's, <laughs> that's probably the reason for like scarlet fever. 
<laughs> it beats the miasma theory. It's, it's no better or worse than that. Um, That's good old-fashioned fun. <laughs> <laughs> but you get the sense it has to be, first of all, it has to have some, like, meaning underneath it. Usually when you see someone in the Irish stories putting a gauge in someone else, you can tell that it accords with their nature. So, for example, when a, a woman falls in love with a man and she asks the man to run away with her so she won't have to marry someone she hates, and he says, no, 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 I'm honor-bound not to, there's clearly something in the stars written that they should be together. And at that point, if she says, I am putting a geish on you to take me away from this place, that's binding. Uh -huh. But if you just kind of think the guy is cute and you go up and say, ah, geish, you gotta fuck me now, <laughs> it's not gonna cut it necessarily. You never see a casual oh, geish in the man, stories. That, yeah. that, now, now my plans for the weekend are ruined. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you had the most powerful button to push in the world. <laughs> that was my ace of the hole. <laughs> okay, now, so this is probably going to be very unfamiliar for almost all of our listeners. Very few people have probably heard of this geish. If anything, a few of the gamers out there might have heard of it. There was a, a, a fifth level spell in Dungeons & Dragons called... You probably I, pronounced it... I love it that you're Geese. not just referencing it. You're like, and it's a fifth level <laughs> spell. It's a fifth level spell. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, uh, I think you put like a command on somebody. Right. And if they don't follow your command, they take like 5d10 psychic damage in like Something the latest like rules. Right. Yeah. And the great thing about that is that in the game, you get, this is getting nerdier and nerdier, you get a saving <laughs> throw, which means that you, you might be able to shrug it off and not actually take the geish. But in, in quote-unquote real life, in the Irish stories, you had no option. If a geish was put on you, it was binding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, let us hastily add, the medieval Irish probably weren't playing Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> so, so it's going to be a little bit different from that. With like sheep's knuckle dice. Yeah, right. Like a 20-sided sheep's knuckle. So, fun fact, uh, there was actually a 20-sided die from ancient Roman times that was by really? the archaeologists. Yeah. Wow, a Roman D20. It was a Roman D20. For those who are not gamers listening, that just means a die that has 20 sides. It's shaped almost like a circle, because all the sides are so small. But they don't think it was used for gaming. They think that it was carved with different weird symbols um, that would have been used for telling the future. So, depending on which of the 20 symbols you got when you rolled it, it would tell something about the omens of oh, the that, future. Sure, yeah. that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Which is how I use my D20. All, all of today's parlor games started out as divination. <laughs> exactly. It's true. Okay, okay, okay. So let's get back to Geish. Right. And let's get a little bit more of a sense of it. Because these things come from stories. Right. Right? This comes from epic literature. Heroic literature. So let's hear a teeny, tiny, little, short story <laughs> with a Geish in it. You got something for us? I have a little something. I nice. will uh, give you guys the abbreviated version as much as anything this epic can ever be abbreviated. <laughs> uh, but many of you listening may have or may not have heard of the hero Cuchulain. And Cuchulain is one of the two most famous warriors in Irish history. And so our story about this Geish comes from Cuchulain's both his childhood and then the end of his life. So to understand Cuchulain, you have to realize that he started his warrior career young. He was seven years old, which is too young to be girded as a warrior in ancient Ireland. He was playing hurling with his friends, which is like this cool game that's like a cross between hockey and soccer, basically. And he happened to overhear a rumor from, from some of them that a druid had said that if any young warrior takes his arms for the first time on this day, he will be greatly renowned through the ages. And that appeals to him greatly. So he throws down his hurling stick and walks straight to the High King and demands that the High King gird him as a warrior. 
and it's everyone. Oh uh, yeah, that was what he was known for. It's like chutzpah, <laughs> you know. So he's he demands this, and everyone in the king's hall starts laughing. It's this kid. Um, it's ridiculous, and they ask him, well, "Why do you want to be girded as a warrior?" And he says, "Because I heard that I will be renowned through the ages if I get girded today." And almost as a joke, they're like, "Oh, give the kid, yeah, give him some weapons. That sounds great. Give him a sword, a shield, and a chariot." They want to see this kid, like, barely be able to lift this stuff and just laugh him out of the hall. So they give him a sword and a shield, and they formally gird him, and he immediately just breaks them. He smashes them to pieces and says to the High King of Ireland, he says, You give me this garbage? You call these weapons? Do you insult me by giving me substandard equipment? <laughs> what? Was this, yeah. like, the rusty sword you find at the beginning of, like, a computer RPG? We don't know. It could have been. <laughs> so the king actually gives him a better sword and shield. He does the same thing. He just destroys them. He says, No, you are insulting me. This is substandard. At this point, the hall is silent because he's insulting the king uh -huh. and the king says all right you know what here's my personal sword here is my personal shield my chariot awaits you in the courtyard you are girded young man <laughs> and everyone's like what's this kid gonna do now he goes out hops in the chariot drives immediately to the borderlands and just challenges this guy who's been raiding their kingdom to one-on-one -on -one combat oh, kills him i thought you were gonna say he drove to the border so he could buy beer <laughs> or fight, or i'm old enough to buy that's how it works in ireland if you're <laughs> yeah. old enough to have a sword you can buy alcohol <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so well, he, over the border you can. Right, not, not <laughs> when you cross laws. over, yeah. right, exactly, yeah. So the different laws. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, long story short, at the end of the day, he comes back with a bunch of heads that he's cut off of all this kingdom's enemies, okay. and he throws them to the High King's feet and says, now are you happy you girded me today? And the High King said, I think that prophecy will be fulfilled. <laughs> and sure enough, he goes on to become this great warrior. So well, at age, the guest part of it? Oh, we're getting there. Oh. <laughs> so at age seven, he's starting to become respected already as a warrior, and he gets invited, as all warriors do, to a giant drinking feast at another warrior's house. The other warrior is named Cullen, and Cullen is famous for being a great fighter, a great right. blacksmith, and having this really badass dog. <laughs> this dog is known as like a monster that even the best warriors of Ireland cannot defeat this thing, so he uses it to guard his house. And when young Cullen... Do we, do we have any idea what breed of dog it might have been? Well, you could probably guess like an Irish hound, like yeah, an Irish probably. wolfhound or whatever sure. they're called, Irish yeah. deerhound, okay. but maybe bigger than most and with like a, a fiery breath or something else <laughs> suitably fantastic. It has a breath weapon. I would assume, yeah, or it has like spikes on it. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally fire-breathing sheep in one okay. Irish legend, so it's not beyond the realm of... Yeah. Realism was ex not big Quote-unquote realism, yeah. yeah, right. Um... So anyway, so he sees this dog and he hears, oh, no warrior can beat this dog. And what do you think he does? Sure enough, he goes over and leaps on the dog, unarmed, and starts wrestling with it. And Cahulian waits until the dog tries to chomp a bite off of his hand. And he shoves his whole fist in the dog's mouth and then <laughs> just pops it out the back of his head and drops the dog dead on Ooh, the ground. That's gruesome. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, and all the warriors there cheer because this is so badass. Nobody could beat this dog. But Cullen, who owned the dog, does not cheer. He gets very upset. He says, what are you doing? That was one of the most valuable things that I owned. You're in my home drinking my ale, and you just destroyed the dog that I used to guard my door. That no other warrior is his equal. Cullen felt some remorse, because there is a certain law of hospitality. He doesn't want to violate that trust. But his name isn't Cullen yet, Yeah, right? true fact. So his name is not yet Cullen. His name at this point is Shatanta, I yeah, think, was his, uh, right. his birth name. Yeah. Um, much less famous version of his name. Okay. So little Shatanta, I should say. He feels bad. And he makes Cullen a deal. He says, listen, you're right. I can't bring back the dog. What I can do is give you my pledge that if your house is ever under threat of attack, I will come here and hold the door in the place of the dog. And that pleases Cullen. He says, oh, yeah, that's a good deal. You beat the dog. You're more badass. I just upgraded my household guard. That sounds perfect. Uh -huh. So he earned the nickname Cullen. Ku meaning a dog or a hound. And Cullen meaning of Cullen. Mm -hmm. So he's Cullen's dog is mm -hmm. what his name means. 
And with taking on that name, he also got the geish, that you must never eat the flesh of a dog. Mm. Which sounds easy to us, but actually through much of the world, even today, dog is not an uncommon dish. My girlfriend has eaten dog. <laughs> and in the old days, it was not uncommon. They would eat dog sometimes. So he had to be careful not to eat dog. And this not was a geisha on him. And he managed to keep that his whole life. And he picked up other geisha, mm -hmm. uh, one of which, as you pointed out, was that he must never refuse food when it's offered to him, mm -hmm. which would have been a violation of hospitality. Mm -hmm. So he had these two geisha on him. And eventually, after becoming very famous, saving Northern Ireland from this great army, all kinds of great deeds, he was on his way to another battle. And it was getting on toward evening, and he sees some, uh, some smoke from a campfire. Mm -hmm. And he uh, figures, well, I need somewhere to rest. Let's see who's over here. So he calls out that he's coming and says, who's there? And an old woman says, oh, it's nobody but an old woman. Uh, come and join me by the campfire. He says, oh, that sounds great. So he plans to share the fire with her for the night. And uh, she's cooking some stew in a pot. And uh, he, he smells, he says, oh, it smells really good. What are you cooking? And she says, why, it's otter meat. And otter, in Old Irish, the word for otter is, it literally means water dog or water hound. Oh, they considered otters to be like a canine species. Okay. So he knows immediately he cannot eat this. And he starts to open his mouth to object. But before he can do so, she says, won't you please have a bowl? <laughs> So now he's caught. He's caught because he also has the guess where he can't refuse. He can't refuse the food. The food. So it's which one do you want to break? Do you want to eat the food uh -huh. and break your gaze about not eating dog, or refuse the food and keep that gaze, but now you are breaking the gaze about not refusing food? Right. He is caught between two uh, hard places, you could say. Uh -huh. And so with nothing better, no better choice to make, he figures I'll at least get a full belly before I die, and he says, "Sure, give me a big bowl," and he <laughs> grimly and and glumly eats the meat. And she begins to cackle, and her, her face kind of changes. And he realizes, as it does, that she is not just any old woman. She is actually Morian, the goddess of death and war. And through all of his life, ever since insulting her at a young age, Cahan has been kind of in conflict with the Morian. She's appeared many times to try to throw obstacles in his way. Uh -huh. And now she has finally gotten him. She forced him to break his geish. And the next day, he went to combat, and he died. He was disemboweled. And he dragged himself to a standing stone and asked his charioteer, will you please tie me to the stone and tie my guts back in my stomach so that I may die standing up? Wow. And that is how Cahalan passed from this earth. That is a badass story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that's from the, the toyme. That the is Quality. It's uh, the beginning part is it's yeah. the the whole childhood stuff yeah. is one of the lead up stories to the toy, yeah. and then his death is actually a story that's uh, is separate from the toy, but part of the same yeah. cycle of stories. It, it, listeners, if you want to look us up yourself and find out more badass parts of the story, yeah. Toyn is actually spelled T A I N Toyn because as if you've ever seen Irish, it's the most messed up spelled thing. There Imagine is actually you're... an order to the chaos, but right. <laughs> it's like if you're trying to write Korean using the Greek alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a reason why, but still, it's yeah. pretty crazy spell. Right. Okay, so what I want to know about that story, thank you for that, by the yeah. way. Okay, so is it Kulan that actually placed the geish on Satanta when he got his name Kahulan? Right. Or who placed the geish and how? So that's, that's what I don't get about fun, this. right. So I, I have to just plead ignorance on this one. I'll okay. just say off the bat, I don't distinctly remember without the text in front of me. And it's also possible that it's never clear. Okay. Because the Irish stories were often written down with a limited amount of vellum mm -hmm. in the monasteries, and they would leave things out or cram things together. So it could just say, and he had a geish on him, that he must never eat the meat of a dog. Right. It might not clearly say, and then so-and-so said, yeah. but it might. I just don't remember offhand. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I, in all my research for this, I didn't find any clear indication of, like, do you call on a spirit of the other world right. to place a geish? Or 
do you have to be a special kind of person? Can you just anybody do it? Yeah. That all that I, I couldn't find. Yeah. And, and I, I think um, the answer is a little fluid, I suspect. But uh -huh. I will say that uh, so in part three, in the third episode in this series, we are going to give you a whole story. I'm going to recite an entire Irish story yes. that hinges on a a love story and a geish. And in Love that story, they do. Like, the woman actually says the words of how she puts a geish on the guy. Oh. And in the English translation, which, take it for what it's worth, because it may not be exact to the Irish, uh -huh. but she says, I place druid bonds upon you. Okay. So when she's, she's formally invoking that, like, what I'm about to say is being said as if it is druidic, as if I am a druid or as if there's druidic magic to it. That's kind of the okay. invocation. Okay. It's like, I place druid bonds upon you. So at minimum, she's invoking the old ways. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Now, at this point, I want to just give a little, I don't want to round out the concept a little bit more with some more examples, because I found some really interesting ones. So when you read the epic heroic literature, it tends to focus especially on kings and heroes that have geisha on them. Right. But I found more than just that. So this is, that was kind of fun. Excellent. Okay. We'll start with the kings and heroes though. So for example, it was geisha for King Connor to go clockwise around his capital city. He couldn't, he, he could go the other way around, but he couldn't go clockwise around Terra. Is the this capital. the king from the destruction of the hostel? Yes. Okay, so yeah. I think it's Conara. Conara. Yeah. Okay. There's a different Conara. king whose name is actually Conor, who's the king of Northern Ireland, but this guy's a high king. Okay. I believe it's Conara. Conara. Yeah. Okay. So Conara couldn't go clockwise around his capital city. Interesting one. <laughs> it was also Geish for any king of Terra to enter North Tethba on a Tuesday. Right. <laughs> Which you can kind of, it, it sets your imagination going. You can kind of imagine maybe there was some kind of political context to that. Some of the geisha have this possible kind of practical aspect to them, but other ones are just baffling. So actually, with the clockwise one, there is a reason for this. Clockwise oh. is a big thing. Was it he, he's not allowed to go clockwise? Sunwise is what they Sunwise, said. Sunwise, which is the same Deschel. thing as clockwise. Yeah. 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 Um, so in ancient Ireland, there was a lot of like etiquette stuff around your right hand, your left hand, clockwise uh -huh. and anti-clockwise. Okay. And um, basically what it boils down to is if you are, are circling a place clockwise, mm -hmm. What that means is that your weapon arm or shield or your, your sword arm is facing the place that you're circling. So what that's saying is that the king cannot encircle the capital as if he would attack it. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay, now I am glad right. that I had you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's all kinds of rules. Like if you're on a chariot, you have your shield on one side, you joust off the other side. Like So you have to go clockwise in certain situations, and it's always an attack, and yeah, all kinds of stuff. It's like a victory thing sometimes. Oh, wow, that's awesome, because yeah. it makes so much sense now. But right. when I, I, I thought that was the perfect example of like a Monty Python one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, like, just absurd. Right. Well, the Tuesday one might be, yeah. because uh, <laughs> I, I think that the place you mentioned is actually another name for Tara, which is the same, like the High King's capital. Yep. Um, and I don't know why it would be on a Tuesday. He can't enter it on a Tuesday. It might be some astrological stuff, like Tuesday is the maybe. day of a certain deity. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe that's when they have their farmer's market. <laughs> He's not Wait. supposed to spend too much on cabbage. Isn't Tuesday, like, <laughs> but, it's from, in Norse stuff, it's the god Tiu, who's like Mars, like the god of war? Yeah. So maybe no entering the capital on the god of war's day? If you're, if you're blending in, like, later medieval Saxony, Christiany stuff into it. You or know? Viking stuff. Viking stuff, right. Yeah. 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 I don't Which, know. That's a guess. That's possible. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hero ones. A couple of... And these are some of the most metal ones that I found. Okay. This is this one here is definitely the most metal one. It was Geish for Fothad Kanaina 
It was gay for him to drink ale without dead heads in his presence. Yes. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, I want that. Okay, if anybody is going to do the Patreon support where you gauge us, that would be great. Remember, it only applies on air, so we can still drink beer in other situations. We can't have ale without dead heads in our presence. Oh, I, I don't know. I don't want to have to go looking for a dead head. <laughs> well, you can't go one episode without ale. <laughs> I'll, I'll get really into scotch at that point. <laughs> okay, Somebody one more. He can only have beer if it was a victory celebration. It's yeah, like, pretty like much. He defeats an enemy, keeps his head, and now, now you can have a drink. Perhaps. Wow, Perhaps. I love it. Perhaps. Okay, one more, and this is less badass, but really fun, I thought. It was Geish for the hero Bress McElitha to pass Oum, which was a kind of writing, Irish writing system. It was Geish for him to pass Oum without reading it. So he had to not read it? He, he had to read it. He had to read it. He so, could not pass it without so reading it. If you put up like a plaque or something in front of him, it doesn't matter what he's doing in the middle of the fight. He's like, oh, hold on, and, I gotta read this. And guess how they defeat him. Did they put a bunch of writing in his face? They, they throw it onto his chest <laughs> in the middle of like a sword duel or something. And then while and he's he, reading it, they stab him. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think that really illustrates a nice aspect of how these are used in the literature is yeah. like they are used actively to like thwart people. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So that, that gives you a sense for like kings and the heroes and warriors and stuff. But there's more to it. Lovers. Okay. You already mentioned one about how, you know, the woman who's like, the guy's honor-bound not to go away with her, but right. she's like, I put a gesh on you. Exactly. So there's examples like that, but I'm going to not spell it out because we'll be hearing of it right. from your story. I'll tell that whole story. Episode three. Okay. But that kind of stuff happens. And then there's some, some less romantic type of lover stuff. For example, King Fakhna, which already has a good name. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> King Fakhna. Uh, had a geish that he must sleep with the first woman encountered after a battle. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that caused trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And I can just imagine, like, he's he's feeling good. He just came from a battle. He's, like, dripping with blood and sweat. And he's, like, sees this really hot, like, sheep herder or something <laughs> lady on the hill. But then old madam like O'Hara comes by and is like, hey, how are you doing? He's like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, this, and this also gets into something about Irish culture. Like, it was a very sexist, like, patriarchal culture in, in, the, in, the, in the old days. Yes, with think, asterisks, but yes. Yes, I mean, people often think of the Irish or Celtic cultures as being, like, really, like, women-friendly and women had equal rights. And what I always say is ancient Ireland was the most sexist culture in the ancient world except for all the other cultures in the ancient world. Like, it was <laughs> yeah, just, like, a right. little bit better. Like, a little hair better for women. But, yeah, if your geish was to, you know, take the first woman you see after a battle, yep. there's nothing in there about who consents to it. You know, right. it's just first woman that you see. Yeah. And that's kind of the par for the course. Like, And we're going to hear a lot more about that when we talk to Jillian Kinney. So, Great. Yeah, good. that was a really yeah. good way to uh, explain that. I'm going to bring that up to her, <laughs> if I remember. Yeah. Okay. What about for gamers? Geish for gamers. So uh, there's a story where a woman named Bekuma places a geish on a man named Art that he must play Fidchel with her Fikiel. for stakes. Fikiel. Fikiel? Fikiel. Fikiel. Yeah, okay. which we'll also hear about in the story later. Fikiel is oftentimes translated as chess. Uh -huh. It is nothing like chess. There's <laughs> nothing in common with chess. Not the pieces, not the board, not the rules, uh, but it is an old board game that they would play in ancient Ireland. Fikiel. Okay. Yeah. And also, uh, when they played, then the winner got to put a geisha on the other person, oh, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So, and, and by the way, uh, before we started recording today, kind of in the spirit of this one, I placed a geisha on both of us, Andre and I, that we had to take a shot before doing this. Yes, so. <laughs> a shot of poutine, which is like Irish moonshine. Yeah. Yeah. How about geisha for diners? There is a geish uh, for many in the literature to never refuse a feast. For example, heard about Cahalan. It was also geish for King Khan to eat alone. Hmm. He couldn't eat alone. Interesting. How about for poets? There was a story where uh, a guy named Marban is pissed off at his poets because their poetry wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts a geish on them that they have to learn the entire toyne, which is the epic that oh, the great. story Andre told was he was, he was yeah. like, I'm sick of this, like, this pulp fiction you guys yeah. are doing. Like, I want real literature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and he also further gauged them that they could not sleep more than two nights in one place till they learned the entire thing. Wow. Yeah. So they were, like, off on it. Like, they had to keep moving. They, they had, had to, to hustle like, it. I, I figure it's like you have to wander around and talk to all the other, all the other poets. Um, poets and stuff yeah. in, in Ireland. And, Which is actually and just a convenient it. way to get the poets out of your castle. You're like, <laughs> yeah, and don't right. come back till you've learned it. Yeah, right. Oh, that'll be a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the last one here, and this is my favorite one. A geish against troublemakers. <laughs> this is also comes from a story of Cahollin. So there was this kind of, like, I don't know what the setup exactly. In my mind, it's like the classic a frat party where, where somehow this guy, Brickrew's house, ends up tilted. Oh, Brickrew, by the way, <laughs> is a nasty character in Irish myth. He was a satire poet, which means he basically specializes in putting curses on people, uh-huh. and nobody liked him. He was just that jerk that you don't want to talk to, <laughs> but he invited all these guys to his house, and you don't refuse an invitation. So yeah, they trashed his house, he got really upset. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, his house is literally tilted, right? Just imagine <laughs> off its that. foundation, yeah. on its side. Yeah. Don't ask me how. It just happened that way. <laughs> they I probably mean, didn't remember how it they, happened either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he puts a geish on Cahollin that they that he and his friends cannot eat or drink until they put his house back the way it was. <laughs> so it's like, clean up after yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So that gives a little bit more flavor and rounding out to this concept of the case. So what do you think would happen with the lower classes? Because these are all like people who are high, like upper class. Yeah. Like if you're just like a regular pub owner and like a couple guys come in and they get too drunk and they trash your bar. Can you, do you think you could stand up at the bar and just be like, I put a gish upon you. You shall not eat until you've cleaned up this pub. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. Because right. I'm trying to imagine, okay, all of this, we get this through like the heroic literature, right? right. And it has this kind of dramatic effect on the story, right? Yeah. right? It brings about a tragic ending. Yeah. But I want to know, like, did this really happen in real life for the average person? Yeah, yeah, the little pub owner? I, I don't know. So I can only speculate. I, I love this question because I actually, I think about this a lot. Like, <laughs> like I lay awake at night, like, I wonder. Um, but I, mean, I, I have some speculation. I think that, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the, the geish is a, it is, whatever else it may have been, it's definitely a literary convention. Okay. It's a device used by the sagas to create dramatic conflict where you know that this person will eventually be like hoist by their own petard, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. the fact that they have a geish probably means that eventually they'll break it and die. Yeah. You know, yeah. it doesn't always work that way. There yeah. are some people who survived having a geish, but mm-hmm. um, usually that's the setup, you know. So it has this literary use. So it's hard to say how much it even was believed in, in the real world, yeah. even but among like warriors. The thing about the literary thing, though, what's funny to me, at least, and this clearly relies upon modern literary sensibilities when I say this, right. but I would think if you were going to use it as a literary device, you would follow 
Hitchcock's advice, where if you show a gun in the first act, it mm. must be fired by the third, and you use it to build that tension. Yeah. But in fact, how it often comes out in the literature is you don't even hear about the geish <laughs> until the person breaks it. Right. And it just says, oh, and that was geish for him. Right. <laughs> and that, I think, might also be a product of how the stories were written down in the monastery. Possibly, I think yes. if the Because it came from an oral tradition. Okay. And I think if the poets were reciting it at a feast, there probably would be better dramatic flow, and they'd uh -huh. set things up if they know they're going to use the death story later. Sure. Whereas in the monastery, they're often taking bits and pieces of what they've heard and trying to cram it together. Mm. Or there's not a good, like whoever's writing it is just recording things and they, they do it out of order so when they get to the point where the guy dies they're like oh yeah we never mentioned earlier so I'll just mention now that was oh, his yeah. gauge you know yeah that could be yeah also, when you're writing on vellum, there's no, like, going back and editing. No. Like, there's no copy no and undo. paste, no insert. Yeah. Right, yeah. There's no undo. Yeah. Right. So, so like, that's whoops. the first thing I would say, is that it, it's definitely a literary thing. I, I personally do suspect that it had some basis in something people believed in the real world as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had to just guess, this is speculation, uh -huh. I would say that among the upper classes... It might be taken as like a matter of honor. Uh -huh. And I think it probably was rare because I think that most people would kind of scoff at the idea of a geish. Uh -huh. But I also think that if somebody had the audacity to actually stand up and say it in that formal, like I'm binding druidic words upon you, yeah. if they said that in the middle of an upper class gathering, a feasting hall or something, and it sounded like confident and true, uh -huh. I suspect people would have been, there would have been that moment where everyone's like, oh shit, you know, just like, what, they just, rah, you know, like it would right. have been that moment where something, and I think it would have been taken like kind of seriously, mm. but I don't know how often that actually happened. Right. And then the other thing I would say is that for the, like the common classes, like for people who are peasants or farmers or pub owners or shoemakers, yeah. I suspect that they might have believed in it because uh -huh. it's the medieval world and there's a lot of crazy stuff people believe in. Yeah. But they might have just seen it as like one of those things that's for aristocrats. Like you hear about mm -hmm. it in the great stories about warriors and yeah. you just kind of treat it as like, well, that's their thing. That's not our thing. It might have, it might have meant something important to them, yes. but it just was, it was part of their values, but not necessarily part of their daily life. Exactly. Which is, yeah. So like if a soldier was traveling through their town and they heard this guy has a geish on him and he has to yeah. do this, they'd be like, oh, wow. Yeah. And they might take that seriously, but it's unlikely that the shepherd is turning to his wife and saying, I geish you to clean up after yeah. this, uh, you know, whatever it is. Kind of in the same way that like, you know, the average person might never, ever run into someone who actually practices magic, but they know and believe about magic. Oh, that's a really good analog. Yeah. yeah like yeah. you, in the medieval world, you might have believed in witchcraft or some kind yeah. of magic, but you probably didn't know anybody who you're like, oh, that guy totally does it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And the, now I'm going to give a counterpoint to that too. Okay. I think what I just said is probably the most likely, it's the most conservative. It's, it's okay. like, well, we probably didn't have a lot of people running around all across all level society throwing gays on each other, uh -huh. but I will give the counterpoint, okay. which is that in Vedic tradition in India, mm -hmm. um, and this is by no means, I'm, I'm not saying they're the same thing. There's a, some right. common origins between Celtic stuff and Indian stuff, but they're very different traditions. Yeah. Um, but they do have a similar idea, um, which is that if somebody is, it's a little bit more um, spiritual sounding, okay. but if somebody is uh, truly, truly knows their inner essence, like who uh -huh. they truly are, and they speak from that place, then their um, words have this binding and almost magical effect because they're speaking their truth. Uh -huh. And the interesting thing about that is that there are stories of people of all castes of society in uh -huh. India doing that. And there's even a story about one town that was saved from a flood because the river was bursting its banks and a woman who was a prostitute. Um, was so in tune with like who or what her true inner nature was, yeah. that even though she was the lowest social caste, uh -huh. when she went out and intoned to the river, like, you must go back into your banks, the river quelled and like receded and the flood was over and she saved the city. 
Okay. You know, so in that case, in a very different cultural context, this idea that like words can have this um, power that comes from your inner nature, even a commoner could do it if they truly expressed it that way. Sure. Maybe the Irish had a similar sense yeah. that if a shepherd stepped up and said with all the might of his soul, a gauge that everyone could see, like, this is serious. This is yeah. something that reflects his inner nature. This reflects, like, the, the grand cosmic truth behind the situation. Maybe they were taking it seriously. I don't yeah, know. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it would just be like, oh, there goes old Farmer O'Doul who has a gauge against peeing standing up. Well, you know, they do have a very strong tradition in the Irish literature of, like, the, I'm going to use a, a, a southern phrase, the shit disturber character. Like, the character who just goes around just messing with everybody else's shit. You know? And uh, there is often this, like, peasant character, sometimes it's a giant, but this, like, very crude of manner, like, low-born, rough-mannered character who will intrude on, a, on an upper-class feasting hall or some kind of upper-class thing and mess up all the social conventions and then do something really important that, like, you know, sets the story for, sets the stage for a story or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think in that role, if it's like you are sort of, you, I could see a geish being like a, a means of like social change, where it's like we don't have any power to go and change what the king says. Yeah. But if a peasant travels from their town to the king's hall and walks in the hall and throws down like the last of his drought-stricken sheep on the ground, its corpse, and says to the king, I put a geish on you to help these people from this drought, uh -huh. I would imagine the hall is going to go quiet and the king would have to do something about that. He can't mm -hmm. just shrug off and say, oh, a peasant. <laughs> you know, because everyone's going to be like, you'll die if you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah. And, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but stuff like that, even dealing with peasants, when it came to the honor, the honor. of hospitality, yes. it, that was taken really seriously back then. To the point that a form of protest that <laughs> a non-noble could do yes. would be to go to the lord or king's hall and fast. Right? right outside, outside, like on the step, like on the step, on yeah. the stoop outside, <laughs> yes. and ref and and but not take any food, and that would be such an insult, not insult. It would it would dishonor the yeah. host, uh, because they weren't they're failing to provide for someone to, on their property to provide the hospitality right. that is due to any traveler. Yes, right? that that would would act effectively socially shame that higher up person right. into acting. Yeah. And this was such a core idea in Irish yeah. culture that even into the much more recent struggle between Ireland and England in the late 1800s and early 1900s, people would do starvation protests in huh. British prisons. Mm -hmm. Irish people would refuse to eat the food, and a number of the, the protesters died in prison because the British figured, well, eventually you'll get hungry. They didn't understand the cultural like depth behind it, that they're not going to give up on the fast. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the Irish actually expected that we'll shame them so much they'll have to do something. And the British had no cultural framework for that. They, they didn't. They were like, why would we change the law because you refuse to eat? Um, <laughs> right. So protesters died, and then later the British would try force-feeding them, and it became this very gruesome, like, kind of two cultures, you know, another layer of the way the two cultures collided. Right. So it's a, it's a very uh, enduring thing in Irish culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So here's the other thing that I want to know. So I was thinking before this episode, I was like, I wanted to place a geish on you oh, no. on air. <laughs> but I realized any, anything that I thought of that I wanted to put on you was like, no, that, that would be such a dick move. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you in a second. Okay. The geish that I thought of. That you thought but of, there's right? no way I could put it on you because it's such a dick move. So I want to know, like... How how could you have actually have done this back then? Why what what motivated a person to put a geisha on someone back then? So okay, oh, you want to yeah. hear the geisha that I thought of for you? Yes, please. Okay, well I thought of a lot of dumb ones first, <laughs> but then I thought of your name, Andre Solo. Great, right? Oh, okay. So yeah. I thought, hmm, 
what if I placed a geisha on you that you had to spend every seventh night alone? <laughs> but in, in proper dramatic style, you would also have a second geisha on you that you could never refuse a booty call. <laughs> 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 oh wow, that would that would definitely change my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know what your girlfriend would think about that. Right. But... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, but that would be a great combination for yeah. like a modern day folk yeah. story, so right. to speak. Yeah. That'd be really fun, actually. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that would be a total dick move if I actually did that to you, but in the stories at least, people actually do that. Right. So yeah. uh? Right. Well, uh, yeah, good question. I, the solo one is really interesting because just like Kuholan is not Kuholan's real name and the geist kind of comes with the name. Mm -hmm. So I could almost picture like if when I first took, because solo is a pseudonym, you know, uh -huh. when I first took that pseudonym, I could picture someone, I mean, not really, because who goes around putting geist on people, but right. I could picture that being like, well, if you're going to take the name, you got to take the geist, it goes with it, uh -huh. you know. I don't know where the booty collar would come from. But <laughs> I, I, that would not be out of keeping, though, with Irish geisa. <laughs> sure. As we heard from that King Fochtla or whatever his I, name was. Yeah. I mean, I think from the examples we've heard in the stories, I really do get the sense that there has to be something that, I guess the way I look at it is that a, a gayish has to, it reflects something about who you really are. It, affects some, it reflects something about either who you are on the inside mm -hmm. or about your inner nature, your, your essence, yeah. or about like what you are meant to do in life. Because early Irish like cosmology and in the stories, there's a strong sense of not fate exactly, uh -huh. but the idea that everyone has a purpose. You know, okay. And there's a whole bunch of I, I could go for hours about that, which right. I won't. But that's a very strong like idea that the okay. sort of your art that you practice and your purpose in life and yeah. sort of your moral virtues, they're all kind of packaged together as yeah. like this like person that you should move toward being or this thing that you should be doing. And in fact, even the word for career in, in the Irish language to this day is a very dramatic phrase. It doesn't mean career or job. It means your way of life. You know, okay. that's much bigger than like the job you work. Right. You know, it's like your family and everything else. Yeah. So, um. I think that a geish always on some level reflects who that person is or is meant to be. Okay. So if it's two lovers running away, it's because, yes, even though you're honor-bound to not run away with me and I'm honor-bound to marry this other guy, we know that the stars are crossed and that we are soulmates, uh -huh. so it would be appropriate for the geish to take us away. Uh -huh. Or if it's these warriors, like, you know... You right, can't... it reinforces values, It usually. does, yeah. Value, yes. personal values and societal values. Yeah. A lot of those warrior values, are warrior geisha, are about hospitality. And, like, yeah. you, you will refuse a feast, you won't refuse a feast, you can only have a feast if you're also doing this. And yeah. a lot of them are also about honor. Yes. Right. Okay, so I want to make a transition at this Great, point. Let's do it. So we've been going on and on, and, and it's just dripping with awesome stuff here. So normally what we do in the first episode is we, we drop in to the actual like time and place and describe the time and place that we're talking about. But for this episode, I think we're going gonna, gonna to push that off to the next episode. We'll do that at the beginning of the next episode. I want to hear about honor. And this will actually kind of maybe even work better because what you're going to tell us about honor is going to kind of go, going to start back in the Iron Age almost. Yeah. And then you're going to work your way toward the medieval period, right? right? Exactly. So we'll we'll talk about honor and how this whole honor culture developed. And then that'll set us up for the beginning of the next episode. We can pick up the timeline from there and talk about medieval Ireland. That Sound good? Great. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. What do you got? So here's what I got. So honor and loyalty are probably the biggest values that run through all of Irish literature and, and like early Irish culture. Mm -hmm. And it starts long before there even was like in Ireland, the way we think of it as like a kind of Celtic rooted place. 
So on mainland Europe, and I'm just going to disclaim, I am not a historian. I am an expert, by the way. You can believe anything I say. <laughs> anything Brandon says. Anything Andre says, just questionable. Questionable, but but go to me. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> just, just exactly. <laughs> um, so basically, if you go back before there were Celts, um, there were these uh, civilizations in what's now like France and Germany and, and Switzerland and Europe, mm -hmm. um, which were uh, very hierarchical. Uh huh. And generally the hierarchy was that there was a very small caste of warriors, uh -huh. um, and it was a hereditary thing. If you were in a warrior family, you'd be trained in weapons from a, a young age, uh -huh. and that was all you did. You didn't farm. You might own land and have people farming it, but you didn't farm. Uh -huh. There was also a very small caste of like priests of some kind, uh -huh. um, and then almost everybody else was uh, a farmer. Uh -huh. And the farmers raised food for everybody, and the warriors protected sure. everybody, and the priests did priest stuff for everybody. And that was the hierarchy. It was very rigid. Um, and what that meant is that farmers didn't fight and fighters didn't farm. Hmm. And that affected how it's war was fought. Later. It's, yeah, okay. yeah, very different from later. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when one of these tribes, and a tribe might be 3,000 people, 5,000, maybe a big tribe would be 10,000. These weren't giant countries. So right? what, if we could put a number to it, what, what era are we talking about? Like, oh, isn't gosh. it a BCEs now? Is it, is it just before the Hallstatt culture? Oh, yeah, it's in the so BC. BC. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So All this right. is so like the very early Iron Age. So what would that okay. be, 500 BC? Something maybe? like that. Something like yeah. that. So these tribes, when they came into conflict, it was very formalized because nobody had a lot of warriors, uh -huh. you know? Right. So you the would like send a message that's like, we're angry for you for moving into this area and taking this. And if you don't give us this back, we're going to come fight you. And then uh -huh. they send you a message back that says, yeah, come fight us, you uh -huh. know? And you almost schedule it, you know? <laughs> you know when you're coming toward each other, you know when the fight's going to happen. And there would be all these precautions taken to try to avoid actually having a battle. Okay. Right? Okay. The first thing they would do is play loud instruments. And I mean, I mean, like horns you could hear seven miles away, gigantic bronze horns, drums, you know, that take two people to play. Um, there's a, an instrument that's not a bagpipe, but it was like the precursor to a bagpipe okay. where you had to do circular breathing to keep uh -huh. the droning sound going. So this unearthly wailing and you would have this music coming from far away. So they know you're badass and you start to get closer. If the other side still isn't scared from how great your music is, <laughs> <laughs> you would then send out your priests and your okay. priests would go like line up and they would basically have a slam poetry battle. <laughs> where they would just take turns just like yes. dissing each other's mother, you know, and just like calling down the gods on each other and talking about what curs you guys are. And maybe one of the priests would just rip the other one apart so bad that it would be like, oh, and they're like, well, we clearly lost. Like the gods okay. are with them. Their priest is better in magic. Like okay. we lost. And one side might on the spot offer terms because their priest got dissed. You know? <laughs> wow. Now, if that didn't work. Okay. Uh, the next thing they're doing is they're, they're doing animal sacrifice through this whole thing. Like, they're okay. trying to read the omens. If, it, if, it, if the omens say, you're going to lose if you fight this battle, they might say, oh, we should offer terms. Okay. The next step is that they send out just one guy each, uh -huh. you know. So you have a champion from each side, yeah. and those two guys fight. And it, same with the priest. If, if, if one of these guys is so much better than the other that he just butches him, uh -huh. then you've only lost one guy. And you yeah. don't have to fight. You can just say, like, your guy's more, more badass than our guy. Let's just call it a day. We'll talk terms. Mm -hmm. If all of that fails, then your armies might clash, mm -hmm. meaning all 30 guys from this side and all 24 guys from that side <laughs> race in and fight. Army with you know, air quotes. Army, yeah. yeah. That's their <laughs> army. And they're really good warriors. They've been trained their whole lives. They do nothing but train at sword and spear, but uh -huh. there are only like 30 of them, right? Yeah. Maybe 50 if you're a huge tribe. Okay. And that was how war was fought. So if you had a battle that went badly and you lose 10 warriors, uh -huh. that is devastating to your tribe. And it leaves yeah, you for yeah. a generation, you know, hobbled. Right? Yeah. So... That was how it was. And then eventually there was this discovery, this military breakthrough. Someone invented the most 
uh, powerful military secret in the ancient world this time. Because at some point, we don't know which tribe, we don't know the name of them, but at some point, a tribe got word that, like, hey, we're, we're angry you stole our sheep, and we're sending our guys. And they're like, oh, God, I mean, we're down to, like, 16 warriors, and that tribe has, like, 45 of them, and they're just going to roll over us. What are yeah. we going to do? And somebody said, I have a plan. <laughs> and he went I to hope, the farmers. I hope this is another nerd wins moment. It's like, like a, kind of it is, yeah. <laughs> like he goes to the farmers, and he's like, listen, guys, um, I know that none of you are ever supposed to fight. Our whole deal is warriors. The whole reason you feed us is uh-huh. so that we go fight, and you don't have to get, you know, sorted. Uh-huh. But I have a proposal for you. What if we bring all of you, volunteers, anybody who wants to, you come with us. We're going to give you spears. I know you're not good at using them, but we're going to give you all spears. Uh-huh. And if we can beat these guys, we're going to give you a share of the gold. Uh-huh. And the farmers, probably a lot of them were like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, you're supposed to do that. But a lot of them <laughs> said, yeah, I would like some gold. I'll give it a shot. Uh-huh. So they gave them, I don't know, sharpened sticks. I didn't even know if they had enough bronze to like make bronze spear tips for all these guys. Bronze but, or iron? Oh, well, they still use bronze for the spear tips, okay, even okay. the Iron Age. Yeah. Sure. So you, you know, the, the battle starts. From, from over the hills, you hear the horns and the droning of these pipes and the pounding of the drums and the other side's droning of pipes and pounding of drums. And like, okay, well, they sound like a big army, but let's go. And there's this big army of like 45 guys from the, from the, the tribe that has the big army of warriors. Uh-huh. I can just picture them like hearing only a few drums and a few horns and thinking this is a joke we're going to roll over these guys uh-huh. and they get ready with their priests and they get ready with their champion like we're going to do this and they see spears start to come over the hilltop and there's five spears and there's ten spears like yeah here we go that's their whole army and ten more come they're like oh okay there are a few more guys than we thought and then ten more spears come and then ten more and then ten more and the next thing you know there's 200 spears coming over the hill uh-huh. and at that moment they were fought <laughs> and this army of peasants with like five warriors leading them uh-huh rolled over these guys, butchered the priest, butchered the champion, smashed the chariots, rolled over them, pushed back into their tribal land, took everything they had, split up the gold, and the farmers went home with little gold and went back to farming. Uh And that was a change in, like, European history. That was the beginning of the war band. Mm. And through the rest of the Iron Age and into the Celtic now, period. Now, just to clarify, what we're talking yeah. about is this must have happened at some point. It, it wasn't have. like this, this is not recorded. recorded. Yeah. yeah, we know that there were these hierarchical societies yeah. that didn't use large war bands earlier, yeah. and then we know that there was a period where war bands suddenly yeah. started happening. So that was our movie yeah. that's based on a true story. The quote unquote, based on a true story. <laughs> yeah, it's based on an implied story. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. But it's all it's all like you know speculation. But yeah. it's it's you know at some point they went yeah. from no war bands to big war yeah. bands. So. Okay. Uh, into the Celtic period where they did have, and now we know, you know, it's documented, they had war bands, which would be hundreds of people. Uh-huh. And some of them would be trained warriors, but there'd be a lot of guys who were just along for like, you know, you're a teenage guy and maybe for three years you go join the war band and fight and travel. And if you don't die, you come back with some money and you start your fa- family on your farm, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is where the loyalty thing became so big. Okay. Because in a war band where you have uh, a couple hundred guys on this side, fighting against a couple hundred guys on that side, Everybody has to have like the same equipment, like a, a shield in your left okay, arm yep. and a spear in your right hand. And if you have money, you have a sword to draw if it comes to it. But uh-huh. it was basically spear and shield. Uh-huh. And the thing about fighting in a line like this is that your shield, your spear is for you. Your spear is you get to stab whoever is in, in your face. Okay. Your shield is not just for you. Your shield is for the guy to your left. Okay. You are keeping him okay, covered I see while where he this fights. Is going. Yep. Right. And so in the setup, if you turn coward... Uh-huh. But you're afraid to fight, and you turn your back and run. It is not just your own life you're risking. Uh-huh. You killed the guy next to you. Yeah. If we're fighting next to each other, and I turn and run, you die. 
Uh-huh. And then when you die, the guy next to you is exposed. And right. then the next guy is exposed. So a whole line can fail if one person, one person turns and runs. Okay. And so this is where the warband and this like culture of loyalty became so big. Your only job, if you join a warband, is to follow orders and to keep your word. Uh-huh. You come here and you promise loyalty to the commander and promise that you'll never turn and run. You'll uh-huh. always fight if ordered to fight. Yeah. And if you do those two things, you get a cut of the gold, you respect it, everything else. And if you fail on either one of those things, there's disaster for all of your friends. And that is how the early Celts fought. Uh-huh. That is how the early Irish fought. And that even long after they stopped using warbands, even in the medieval era where they had like much more complicated weapons and sure. armies, yeah. um, that ethos of like your honor, your loyalty is not just about you. It's about keeping everybody around you alive. That sticks. So that ethos runs through all of Irish culture till the med- medieval period. Wow, that was really explained amazingly well. That was awesome. That yeah. I, could, I can like feel it. 50% speculation and 50% history, and it's like, <laughs> but somehow in that early period, that's yeah. how a war band came together, and yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm holding my shield up partially in front of Andre right now. Yes, I feel yes. protected. Yes. I'm going to spear some people. We're totally broing out <laughs> with our shields. Loyalty all the way. So now, now, to cap this episode off. Okay, honor, 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 honor. Loyalty, got it, right? right? What does that have to do with Geisha? I think it's two things. I think, and again, this is just off the top of my head. And it's wild speculation, right? Wild speculation. Yeah. Yeah. Full disclosure. We'll be wildly speculating a lot in this series. The the real answer is get in a time machine and go ask some of these guys, you know. But my speculation would be two things. The first thing is the the Geish reflects social values made into a ritual. Okay. And so it's not just good enough to talk about honor and like, oh, well, we've been in a few battles with you at our side and we know you didn't run. Mm-hmm. This is a very formal way of like putting this like obscure, sometimes weird rule on you. Mm-hmm. And obviously, since you know it's, it's a literary thing and it's, it's a cultural creation, you probably would not actually die if you broke your gaze. <laughs> but you could just imagine like the weight of... Uh, you would essentially, for all purposes, be dead. Like If, if we're a group of warriors and we all uh-huh. know that your gaze is to never... Um, whatever, to never drink beer unless there's a dead head in your presence. Uh-huh. And we're sitting around an alehouse and someone is off serving beer and you just give in and say, you know what, I'll, I'll have a pint. At that point, you don't know You're if you can everybody. trust your word Yeah, anymore. we don't know if we can trust you at all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is <laughs> yeah. you have broken this ritual thing. Yeah. And then on top of that, there could be, I mean, you could, for all I know, you'd become an outcast or we would expect you to die so we just wouldn't cover your ass that much yeah. in the next battle. So you might end up getting killed, you know, yeah. just the way that that psychological stuff works. Um, so that makes sense. It's kind of like it's a way of demonstrating on a daily basis, even in peacetime, yes. that you are a person you can count on right. to keep your to your word exactly. and your principles. And you almost get the sense that even just having a gaze would mean that you're kind of somebody special. You know, like, hmm. there could be, you know, 50 warriors in your warband or a couple hundred, and there might only be that one guy who's got a gaze. You know, and that would right. be like, well, he obviously went out of his way to get that he must have done some great feat or taken on some special crazy title or uh-huh. made some great oath or something that resulted in this gayish. So already you're kind of distinguishing yourself as like, I'm willing to go the extra mile. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it, I think, is even if there was no, even if there never was a formal concept of a gayish, uh-huh. I think, which there was, but even if there had never been, I think that the concept of loyalty and keeping your word is so strong in Irish stories that you you wouldn't want to live if you broke your word. Uh-huh. And there are numerous cases worth no geish involved, but numerous cases in the stories where a warrior has a very clear choice that if you go here, uh-huh. you know it's a trap, you know you will be killed, uh-huh. and they still choose to go there. Yep. And that's maybe the resounding theme of like Irish literature is like it's better to, to honorably go to your death 
than it is to live. It'd be, it's better it, to, to it, lose in honor than to win without honor. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- yeah. So that's my guess as to kind of the role it played and how it connects to honor. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I think we, I think it's time to draw this episode to a close, but we are going to be back for way more uh, next week. So everybody stay tuned for that. Next week, we'll be talking about uh, social structure yes. in Ireland, which may sound boring, but we found so much awesome stuff. It's, it's a weirder ex- place than you guys expect. It's, <laughs> it's, oh, say, so it's way different than yes. your average stereotype of the medieval society where yes. there's basically lords, knights, and a bunch of peasants living in houses made of shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which, they is probably, have that. <laughs> which which probably is not even true of any of the medieval societies. But anyway, the point is, it's I, I regret way to tell different. you that the shit based houses is a real thing. Is it really? Actually, okay. use dung as part of the mortar. I've heard of the the daubs you go on their walls. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we will be well, we will talk about that next time. So stay tuned for that, Andre. I believe you have a product that you probably want to plug. Uh, yeah, if anybody out there, if any of the following things are true, a you love to color in beautiful coloring books. B, you have someone in your life who loves to color and you want to get them a gift. Or C, you just love good stories. Or um, D, someone has placed a geisha on you to color them. You must color. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you like coloring books or someone you know does, my girlfriend and I just created the first coloring book with an introvert theme. It is called Introvert Dreams. It has a story told in pictures and words uh, of a journey into an inner dream world. Introvert Dreams is available at Amazon.com. And that girlfriend would be the brilliant and talented Jen Greneman. Jen Greneman, the creator of Introvert Deer, one of the largest websites for introverts. Yes. Okay, well, awesome. Uh, Everybody listening, uh, thank you. If you like this show, please tell us. If you have questions or corrections, please write us in. We'll only lightly guess you if we are (laughs) upset by your comments. Do you have a dead idea that you'd like us to explore? If so, we want to hear about it. So please write us in at deadideaspod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media at at deadideaspod. Or go to our website at deadideas.net. All right. I think that's it for this time. Thanks, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm